Hello. I, I, I'm not hearing you in the right spot. No, you sound funny to me, too. I am, fu- I am funny. Hilarious. I probably sound better there. Oh, yes. Sound better now. Better now? Better now? Better like now. the eye doctor. Uh, better now. You sound the same. Oh, you're in my head. <laughs> but only but only when we're actually talking in real life, right? No, you're <laughs> you're almost always in my head. They, I think they have medicines for that now. Oh, true. Oh, I'm not even recording. Crap, Don. I'm I'm a mess today. I, I you're gonna hate me if well, you don't already. Well, <laughs> we should we should let the the listeners know that we had originally scheduled to record at ten, and then I I asked to move it earlier, and you said nine thirty, and here it is, almost ten, yeah. and we're getting started. So you know, five minutes, uh, ten minutes early. I know, I know. I'm sorry. It's okay. I'm recording on this end. Okay, good. Because I can't even find my call recorder. I'm, I'm, huh. I'm flummoxed. Huh? Is that? Did I use that term right? You did. You did. Where did you? Where did you last see the call recorder? <laughs> <laughs> I with my keys. Usually, it's the last place you you yeah. left it. It, oh, no, it's not there. Okay, well, good. Call call recorder. It's. I'm glad you're recording. Um, yeah, yeah, I had. You know, one of these things that I thought I thought it would be quicker than what it was, and and it wasn't, and it was, and I'm glad, on one sense, that it wasn't, um, and and I want to I want to talk about it, but I'll leave it until later. Yeah, well, and you know, and sometimes those calls, you know, they need to take as long as they need to take, and you know, you gotta, you know, it's if you don't take the time, then you know, you'll take the time later, or you'll pay for it. So yeah, you and you get. You gotta you gotta learn to trust your your judgment on that. Yeah, and it, and it's one of these things where the the audience was already captured, so right. I wanted to lose. I didn't want to lose that and, and have to come back to it. So anyway, exactly. But I apologize to you because I know you um, you wanted to to move things up. So. Oh no, that's Sorry. that's okay. All all I have to do is to fly to another country, but <laughs> I don't I don't have to do that until later today. They'll wait for you. They always do. The airplanes? I don't yeah. think so. Yeah, no, just call, just let them know. If you no. talk really nice. <laughs> well, actually, actually, the the thing that the thing that I was trying to schedule around was not the leaving for the airport so much as the dropping of the dog off at the kennel. But uh, um, but Kristen's going to take care of that, so we're uh, we're good. Okay, good. Well, I was going to say that we could um, we can always make this a short podcast because we do sometimes make them long podcasts. I think we always make them long podcasts. Well, it's relative. <laughs> right. Well, you know, just like your phone call, um, what, it'll be as long as it needs to be. Exactly. It takes it takes as long as it takes. It takes a village to make a podcast. It takes it. It does. Um, <laughs> they take and take and take. <laughs> no comment. I think, I think you're thinking of the Clash. <laughs> oh. Um. So what's going on? How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm uh, I'm a little I'm a little stressed out because I'm I'm going on a trip, but that's uh, it's like just the normal stressed out from being on a trip and and also over committing, ah. which is uh, you know I haven't figured out how to not do that yet. But I mean it's you know over committing with good things like I'm doing good work. I'm you know it's consulting stuff, but it's it's important consulting projects. And then I've got all these damn graduate students that seem to take a lot of time, although I mostly neglect them and they actually, they do just fine. And I shouldn't, I shouldn't complain about them because really they're not bothering me. They're just sending me stuff to read that I need to read and I'm not doing it. So Uh, I, 
I share that with you. <laughs> I, I, I'm trying. I, I feel like I'm always trying to turn a page on that. Like, like you know, next week I'm going to do so much better at this, or tomorrow I'm going to get better at at. at at making sure I'm managing things well. And sometimes that works and sometimes I do. And then sometimes I regress and, um, that you're, you're right though. The, um, the best part about, you know, a grad student or staff member sending you something is that, that it's moving, but right. Like that, that you're going to have something at the end of it that, you know, that's the thing that always, uh, keeps me, you know, that I always have to think about and remind myself. I'm like, well, this is going to turn into a paper. This is, we're going to get this out there and someone might learn from it. And, um, we're doing, we're doing really good work here. I I don't want to be the bottleneck of, of stopping that from going out. And and too often I am the bottleneck. Oh yeah. Well, exactly right. Exactly right. And, and that, and the, the problem, the thing is too, and I notice it's like, why did I, uh, why did I, not do this sooner because all I really needed to do, it's like I had this, I built it up in my mind into this two hour block of massive editing. And all I really needed to do was to look at it for 15 minutes and come up with a couple of hours of additional work for the graduate student to do because they didn't, you know, do it right the first time. And so all it really takes is a few minutes of my time to unblock it or to point out things that they can then go and do. And, and, and it's just like over and over again, I make that mistake and I don't, I don't know, I don't know how to fix it other than to, you know, to, to stop procrastinating. But, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm making, I'll make a vow. I'm going to stop procrastinating, but not, but not till tomorrow. Tomorrow, (laughs) Exactly. I know that. I know that what move. It's funny. There are. Do you have people in your life that are good, not non procrastinators? Like, so I'm. There, there are two two people. One who I live with, uh, my roommate. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> who doesn't? Who 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 is like? Look, if you have something to do, we get up. Just do it. Like, why are you? Why are you worried about planning on when you're going to do it? Just do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she, she's Dan, – Danny's a good inspiration on that. Um, and actually, there's probably three. Doug's also very good at, at saying that as well. But um, Carolyn <laughs> – Doug is – wait. Let's clarify. Doug is very good at saying that. To me. Yeah. Don't procrastinate. Right. I don't well, know that he's like – yeah. I remember this great story that you told of, of you and Doug on an airplane with him saying, do those do those expenses. Do those ex- – got to get those expenses yeah. for the trip. Got to do it. Got to do it. Got to do it. And, of course, you, you did it and he didn't. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Um, he's good at telling me that I shouldn't procrastinate. And Car- Carolyn Dunn, um, who we've talked about on the podcast, who runs uh, uh, Food Myths and Memes uh, with me and um, is my uh, – uh, interim department head in, in my department. She, uh, she also says, I can't stand, I can't stand other procrastinating uh, others procrastinating. And, and I don't, I don't, I don't do it. If I've got something, I got to move on it. I got to move. I don't want to stay still, stay standing still. So they're good inspirations. I just, you know, it, the, uh, this is again, our, uh, food safety talk therapy session. Um, for me, I end up thinking about it too much. Like, like how you just captured it on, you build it up that it's going to be two hours and it's, and you have to psych yourself up for those two hours. And by psyching yourself up, you get more, I don't know, stressed about the whole process. And then you just get paralyzed. That is the part that, that I wish I could not do anymore that I could just, and, and when you sit down and actually 
spend 10 minutes trying to just start it and you're like oh this isn't so bad this is uh, this isn't as as taxing as i thought it was going to be and we're going to get something out of it at, at the end so so just sit down and do it well and 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 yeah and that's one of the one of the tricks that i've found that really works for me is is to not say i'm going to spend 2 hours it's like i'm going to spend 15 minutes on this that's yeah. all i'm going to do and it's just like and the other, you know talk about taxing things and tax, oh, taxes. taxes. Um, I've been procrastinating that. And I got started um, last weekend, this past weekend, and I made significant progress. And then I, I uh, you know, and then I procrastinated another bit of it because I, I got, you know, doing my travel, doing my travel stuff. And it, it, I got through that. And then I had the international travel. I was like, oh my God, I have to go to a website and I have to look at the exchange rate. And it's just like, it's like I did that one night while I was watching TV. And, you know, just a little bit of light math and, and, and internet surfing. And it was like, no problem. And the other thing too, that has helped tremendously, um, is, and we talked about on the last podcast is, uh, my my treadmill desk, which it is, it's. I'm not a great typist anyway, and I'm an even worse typist when I'm walking at the same time. But I have been using the heck out of this gorgeous microphone that I bought for podcasting, along with Dragon Dictate software. And I, you know, it's like I can crank through a bunch of horrible emails that I'm dr- just dreading for no particular reason other than I have to sit at a keyboard and type um, and just crank through those things. And and it's really – and the same thing with my taxes. It was just like looking at a receipt, saying a, a name of a thing and then saying a dollar amount. And then you know the, the hardest part of the whole thing was figuring out the command to have Dragon Dictate move to the next field in the software. So it was like – it was it was a tremendous – I don't know why typing is an impediment to me doing something but – but the fact that I can just stand there and talk into a microphone and stuff happens, um, it it just makes it so much easier. And I'm not really sure why, but for whatever reason, and I and I'm I'm happy to 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 do some sort of you know hack or or trick or whatever whatever you want to call it that'll just get me moving on something. Have you? Uh, we talked about this a while ago, but have you used Dragon Dictate for any more? papers? Um, I have. I, I mostly use it for writing short form stuff, um, but absolutely I've used it for papers. I love that idea. Yeah. I mean, I, I still, I, it, there, here's another one. I love the idea of doing that. I still haven't done, you know, done it. And I'm sitting on, you know, some things that are in, in PowerPoints that I've put together at, you know, at a request for someone wanting me to talk on something. And, and at the end of it, it's like, oh, that would make a really good paper. And I, and it's still, it's still kind of sitting there. So. And what, do you have the software? No, so I so, I haven't even gotten that far. Well, and so here's the thing, and we've talked before on this podcast about David Allen's book, Getting Things Done and, and Productivity, or we've I don't know if we talked about it on the podcast, but we talked about it in real life. And you know, one of the things there is like oftentimes and, and I'm no I'm no pro productivity expert and we'll get we'll get back to other people that are also not productivity experts um that I want to talk about briefly, um and how they don't do things. <laughs> um and um you know, it's just like with, with, with getting things done, there's this concept and I don't, I don't seamlessly implement getting things done. But one of the things that I've taken, there's a couple things I've taken away from it. But one of the things I've taken away from it is this idea of the next action. What is the next physical, visible action in the real world that I need to take to make this thing happen? Right. And, and for you, the next physical action that you need to do is you need to sit down at your keyboard with your credit card and go to the Dragon Dictate website 
and order the software, right? So, so that, that is the next action for you, and you need to be in a context where you can do that. So a place where you have your credit card, a place where you have an internet connection, hopefully a fast internet connection because it's a massive bloated piece of crap software, <laughs> which, which mostly, mostly works. Um, but, I mean, when it does work, it's fantastic. And, and that's what you need to do. And then the, and the trick, again, I'm, and I'm good at quoting the, the theory here, the, the theory there in, in getting things done is you, make the, you put that next action on a context list that says, okay, when I'm in a context where I have a fast internet connection and I have my credit card. And then, and then you just, when you're in that context, you're looking at all the things I'm going to order on the internet, and then you just click through it and do it. Or the other concept of getting things in getting things done that I find tremendously useful is this idea of the two minute rule. And the two minute rule says it's not the five second rule. Don't even get <laughs> me started. The two minute the two minute rule, which says that basically if it will take you longer than two minutes to write down and track and and store an action. And so if if it takes you longer to to catalog it and track it, you should you should just do it. And so the idea is if, if a next action will take you less than two minutes, then you just do it the next time you have two free minutes. And so I suspect uh, ordering that software is probably less than a two-minute activity, at least to, to push the button and start the download, right? So, so you know, it's theoretically, if you have money in the bank or, you, if you, you know, if you have uh, money within, on your credit limit, um, you know, not that I'm advocating people spending beyond what they have, but, but you can go – you could go and do that. Uh, like right after the podcast. And in fact, I, <laughs> or maybe you could even do that while I'm talking. <laughs> yeah. In, in fact, I've opened it up. I've got, I, I've clicked on the buy now. I've clicked on digital download. And my problem <laughs> on my, my context is I don't have my credit card close by. Well, and, and honestly, and I'm just now thinking about this, we should don't probably, well, yeah, because it'll, it'll affect the, uh, the, the bandwidth with just reminding me that I have not, uh, I have not turned off uh, Dropbox or uh, time machine, but I'm going to go ahead and do that right now. Um. Well, exactly. <laughs> but anyway, so, so here, here's the, I, I mean, here, here's the encapsulating this perfectly. I have now opened it up. I've gotten to the point where I'm stuck because I can't do it right now. And the true test is whether I come back to this in an hour and 10 or 15 minutes when we're done and complete this task. <laughs> or does this stay open for a while, even though all it's going to take me to do is walk downstairs and get my wallet? Um, that's the, the, These are the real struggles that I have. Well, and, you know, one of the things that I have done because of that impediment and is um, I just have my credit card number programmed into a keyboard shortcut on my computer. And so, and as well as my address, right? So if I want to order something, I just type a few keystrokes, boom, credit card number. I type a few more keystrokes. It puts in the street address, a few, a few more keystrokes, uh, two more keystrokes, and it puts in my town, a couple keystrokes for a phone number. So, you know, all of that uh, is again, this, this idea, and, and this has now become a productivity podcast. Um, and, 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 and it's all of that is about reducing friction and, and, uh, uh, and and it's just like uh, you know again uh, let's let's you know we don't have a, a sponsor but let's you know let's pretend that uh, this podcast was sponsored by Smile Software and their software Text Expander um, you know and a friend of mine at work recently switched over to the Mac and he and we were talking you know he's kind of a, a, a nut about productivity and being efficient and all of that um, and and he's like what do you use and I was like, I use Text Expander and he's like oh I don't know I don't want to pay for something that does it and it's like really. It's thirty-five bucks. It's, it's thirty-five bucks. I mean, that's a rounding error on this guy, on this guy's salary. Um, <laughs> and and 
and it's just like, and it saved me. I mean, I think I looked, I can look, I can look right now on, on text expander and I will tell you how much time based on my typing speed, I will tell you how much time that that has saved me. Um, it, it's just, it's, it's a phenomenal amount of information. Um, it, it has, uh, okay. It has saved me over a million keystrokes. Okay. If you assume that I type at 80 words a minute, it saved me 50 hours of typing. 35 bucks. 35 bucks. I, that's worth it, I think. Yeah, that's worth it. <laughs> so anyway, so we'll, we'll link to all of these things in the show notes. But, so uh, two, th- two things I have for homework. Yeah, right? okay. Te- you know what they are. Text expander. Yeah. And completing my uh, Dragon Dictate. Right. And you have, you, have, you have already read Getting Things Done, right? I've already read Getting Things Done. And, yeah. and you know, I think I told you this. So this, is, this does turn into a productivity <laughs> podcast now. Um, I, I, moved, I had moved away from OmniFocus and the, the GTD mm. process because I, I didn't find that I was using it and, and that I was capturing things um, using the native reminders and integrating that with my calendar. And last week, I kind of I, I made this decision. I was like, I'm going to spend I'm, – I'm uh, I've, I've got a couple hours – that I'm going to put into getting back into the uh, the OmniFocus world because there's uh, for me there's there are too many things that I forget that I that I'm relying on a workflow of writing it down in the right place and that it will come back and and remind me to do it and and it, I there's a way to like and OmniFocus does that you know for you <laughs> like once it's integrated I just got out of it and and so I'm going to try it again I think it's I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm going, I've got, I got time scheduled next week to, um, uh, to go in and, and just go through every, you know, thing that I've got written down somewhere on things that I have to do that I've committed to, to, to putting it back into the process and then, and then hopefully trusting myself to, um, to go back into it. Yeah. And I, and I go, and I'm not, again, I'm not a productivity expert and I, I, uh, I, I struggle with this, the same stuff as well. And again, same thing with OmniFocus. Uh, I use it all the time and I'm really good at sending stuff to OmniFocus. <laughs> Yes. Um, but I'm not good at doing the stuff in OmniFocus. That it's, was it's my like, problem. It's like the that Seinfeld sketch about you're good at taking the reservation. <laughs> you're not good at holding the reservation. So, oh, and by the way, um, you know, OmniFocus for iPad is is fantastic. They came out with OmniFocus two for iPhone. Really nice, clean design. You know, iOS seven style design, gorgeous. Um, uh, OmniFocus for the Mac has been around for a long time. Um, They are working on uh, OmniFocus two for the Mac. It's in beta right now. I'm one of the beta testers for it. It is gorgeous. It is a beautiful looking piece of software. They are planning, I think, on shipping it in June. Um, Just fantastic. And that's kind of gotten me back into OmniFocus. And, and again, the, the Mac, the phone, the iPhone and the iPad versions all sync with one another. And so, uh, I've gotten, and you know, and my, my system, when I, when I slide, my system is like to collect stuff in my inbox and, and that just is not sustainable. And so right. what I do when I get inspired is I shoot all that stuff out of my inbox into my OmniFocus inbox where I process it into contexts and projects and then promptly forget about it. Um, you know, until somebody bugs me, which, which is kind of not really a good system, but anyway, um, I, I am, you know, getting back into it and I, and I waffle with all of these things and, um, but, but I'm, I'm feeling, you know, I'm feeling the, the, the OmniFocus is a really cool place to be, especially with this new version for the Mac that is just a, like I said, a complete redesign and, and just is really nice to use. Cool. And I, I think that's the, 
me, you know, why I like you so much and, and why we get along <laughs> is that I, I think we're both of us are always kind of struggling with what we're doing, right? Like we always kind of want to find other ways to do it, to make it better or to like, there's no, well, we haven't settled on, Oh man, I got it all figured out. Um, and I like, I like that. I like, I like that you and I struggle with that together. Well, and you know, and this is the, and I was talking about this with my son who, who struggled with some of these same issues. And, and again, why talking about why I like the back to work podcast with Merlin mm. and, and also, um, uh, the Roderick on the line podcast. I mean, it's, it's mostly just about, um, uh, uh Mer- Merlin and John, um, being funny or being interesting. Um, but, but honestly, it's really, a lot of times they talk about like the stuff that the stuff that John struggles with in terms of like trying to decide what his career is. And, and he started doing, it's not really stand up. He started doing this performance thing, um, in Seattle biweekly. And there's a whole thing on Twitter about what he was, Roderick was trolling the Twitter, the, the trolls on, on Twitter about what the word biweekly means. And anyway, lots of good fun. But, but again, I love the fact that they just talk about what's going on in their lives and, and how they struggle with this stuff. Um, oh, and speaking of productivity experts that struggle with stuff there's a certain product that we'll just we'll just sub subtweet him here there's a certain productivity expert that may may be speaking at the IAFP meeting this year who has i procrastinated sending him the forms and he he's now signed one of the forms but has still not filled it out um and it's been weeks so shut I, up i, I re- <laughs> Remind. He's a delightful. He's a delightful broken mess, which is why he's a great product. He's that. See, you don't as a for a for you don't want somebody who's really good at doing stuff. No, for a productivity that, expert. You want someone who's a flawed human being. That's ex- exactly. That's that, that's exactly it. That's because uh, you know I'm I'm of the internet age, and everything should be built for me. And I want someone who's going through the same struggles that I am. Exactly. <laughs> I want you. Know, I want it to be. I, I don't want it to fit some some other mold. And I can't believe that you just. Um, I look. I, I I need to know more about um, this individual who's signing who signed something but hasn't filled it out. <laughs> I need. I need more. I need more eventually. Well, you'll get I, to. You'll get to. You'll get to meet him this summer. Hopefully, when he holy, comes to speak at IAFP. Holy crap. <laughs> so I don't want to lose if, our. If he ever gets iTunes. The, if he ever. If he ever gets this, the form filled out. Oh my God. <laughs> I've, I've been bugging him every week, so it's. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, I uh, so uh, since we haven't really started talking about food safety, I got one more thing. <laughs> sure. You mentioned uh, Roderick and and his um, something that's like stand up. Mm-hmm. I uh, I watched a documentary on Netflix on Fifty Years of the Improv. I don't know if you've seen this. It popped up. It's like new, been new added to Netflix. Um, so the, you know, the, there was a show on A&E back in the late eighties, nineties called an evening at the improv. And it came out of this, uh, these comedy clubs. I mean, really the first comedy club, um, ever in the, in the sixties, it was called the improvisation, um, in New York city. And then they opened one up in hell's kitchen. There's, I mean, there's a whole bunch of history on this, but I, 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 you know, Back back when I was in high school and and for a while I was always very drawn to um, to stand up comedy and then there was this boom of stand up comedy and then I kind of went away and I didn't really get in I'm not haven't been really all that interested in it but it's kind of cool to watch this this documentary because it reminded me of 
it's not just about the entertainment part of it. It's about the art of storytelling. I mean, that's the, the that, that's the thing. That's what, what all the, um, the notable, uh, comics are, are really good storytellers. So I'm, I sit, it's like very meta of, of myself. I'm sitting there watching this, this documentary cause it's entertaining and thinking they're really talking about storytelling and how to be a good storyteller and, and why storytelling changes and, and then thinking about, hey, that's kind of what I try and do in talks. And now I'm looking at them of, as this is their craft and that's what I'm trying to do. Not be a stand-up comedian, but to really engage and, and, and tell good stories. And, I was, and it was like, whoa, this is – then I was really in. Then I was like invested in thinking, man, maybe I need to learn more about how other people do this in other fields because storytelling and narrative seem to be so – important in the literature and that's what I try to do, but I don't know. I mean, I never really thought of it as I, I thought of it as there are good storytellers and bad storytellers, not there is an, an art and a process to it. And so it was like, it kind of blew my mind a little bit and there was no, like I wasn't in Colorado. There was no, uh, um, you know, extracurricular <laughs> things last night. Um, but, but you know, you, you know what I'm saying? Like this is the, this stuff that that we all try to do, and, and it comes down to what you know, what Doug's uh, instilled in me through the barf blog process and everything else that that we do. On we have to be compelling, and we have to tell good stories. Well, there's there's like a whole field of people that do this and 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 study it, <laughs> right, right. Which is which is you know, it seems really obvious when you say it, but it, it's making that that connection. On I need to watch others outside of our field to find out how they do this better than what we do. Yeah. Um, well, and, and I, you know, and I think, you know, there are comedians that study it, but, but then there's also comedians that just do it. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. And from what I, from what I've heard too, there's a lot of comedians that are just, again, speaking of fundamentally broken people, there, there are a lot of comedians that are just not nice human beings. Right. I mean, I'm sure there, that's not all of them, but, Anyway, I've heard from people that know people in the industry. It's just, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, the thing that I guess what struck me about this was this this group, and they said there was about 100 comedians that were in this improv family, essentially. They had a softball team in New York as part of the Broadway um, you know, uh, arts uh, softball league. And, but, but they um, – you know, these, these were the, you know, Leno and uh, Fallon and Seinfeld and Larry David and Richard Lewis, that, that what they did was they'd get up and uh, Judd, Judd Apatow was, was heavily in, in this, uh, this world as well as uh, near the end of it, that they would get up and they would go write jokes or go write stories with each other. And then they would go, even when they weren't on, they would just go watch. You know, they they would be in that room to see, um, you know, Robin Williams do a do a set and see what he was doing. Like they were the, this this family of people really started. It sounded like they were so into how everyone else was, what they were doing and where they were pushing it. That that was this you know, where I got this concept. I was like, that, what you know, they were so immersed in this, and they were there for six eight years watching everybody deliver everything every night to figure out where they fit in and what they were supposed to do. And it was, so it was like, they, they described it as this was my college. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I watched yeah. every day yeah. what someone else did. And I picked up something from them and I picked up something from somewhere else. And I looked at their process. So, 
it was very, as I said, very, very meta. Cause I was, I, I was thinking I, I do that when I, when I go to conferences less so now, but I, but I used to spend a lot of time watching people that I thought were just good speakers. Right. Even if you weren't interested in the material, you right. went because you wanted to, 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 to see what, what they had to say and, and how they had to say it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Actually. And there was a really good, um, um, uh, there's a really good, uh, podcast called Command Space that I listen to sometimes, and and again, uh, Merlin Mann was a guest on that this week, and he and Mike uh, uh, Hurley, who's the host of the podcast, ended up talking about um, pres- presentation and and presentation style and how to give a good presentation. And so we'll link to that in the show notes as well. Again, really good, uh, very similar kind of conversation. And before before we leave the topics of comedians and or productivity, we'll we'll also link to a, a life hacker. Um, a blog post entitled uh, Jerry Seinfeld's Productivity Secret. Have you heard about this thing, uh, uh, his thing about don't break the chain? No. Okay. So so basically um, uh, Seinfeld's thing is uh, every day he would – write jokes and he it's very very simple he got he gets a big wall calendar with the whole year and then he gets a a red magic marker and then he says uh after uh uh for each day that he does his his daily time for writing jokes he puts a big red x over that day and then after a few days you have a chain of these big red x's and the idea is is that you don't break the chain right so every day you sit down and you practice your craft and it doesn't matter i don't know if he if he if this blog post talks about how much time he spent but the idea was that you're going to you're going to figure out something that you're going to it's like running or something right, right. you're going to do it uh you're going to do it every day so it's not like um as it says in the blog post it's not like you're going to sit down and write a thousand jokes in one day but every day you're going to sit down and you're going to write one joke it might not be a good joke but you're going to you're going to work on it you're going to practice your craft and you're going to write that one joke and that's the that's the technique for uh for doing it and i've often thought about doing that with uh with writing and i just you know don't have that uh ingrained as a habit yet i mean there are there are times when i'll go and i'll I'll do it for a few days but then uh, um, you know my job and i know your job and many of the listeners jobs are such that they probably can't they don't have that flexibility like we have to travel and we have to do do stuff and but again, you probably if you if you set that goal to be small enough and manageable enough, so it is something that you literally could do every day. It's same thing with meditation, right? So it's a, a running practice or a meditation practice or a writing practice. Is the trick is you just have to, you go and you do it every day. Yeah, it, um, it, this reminds me just to bring it back to our um, uh, our intro music. Uh, reading in Neil Young's um, biography. Uh, about his his dad uh, Scott Young was a was a writer a sports writer for the Globe and Mail in Canada and for others uh, you know no, for lots of other um, newspapers um, but he you know Neil talked about his his dad would get up at at five a.m. six a.m. Um, and write and would write every day would write two pages. And, you know, he was a columnist, so he, so he had deadline and, and that was, you know, part of it, but also he was writing books and, you know, novels and, and larger things. Um, but he had to, he had to get past that two page every, you know, every single day, this, you know, this concept of, uh, of the chain. And sometimes he'd be finished that at six thirty in the morning. And sometimes it would be four o'clock in the afternoon, but it, but that was the, he had that, that, he, you know, Neil, Neil talked about how he knew that is, he couldn't. 
he he wasn't in you know couldn't be around his dad while that was happening Mm-hmm. And that was his, you know, his way of getting, you know, get, working on his craft and, and moving it. But it was this this concept of every day I do this. This is what I, the, you know, I, as long as I get past this, I know that sometimes it'll be fourteen pages, but I need to get those two in every day. Right. Right. Yeah. And 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 you know, and, and uh, was reading somewhere I don't remember where about writers who, you know, get get become popular and then you know all they ever do then is respond to fan mail and and that that can become a full-time job and so again talk about writers and blocking off sometime during the day every day you know again meant for many writers it's morning but if you're not a morning person it's not the morning but blocking off that time to do that thing and then and then in the afternoon you'll you'll answer fan mail or in these days you'll you'll do email or you'll do other you know errands or whatever product you know stuff you need to keep your life uh, in order but but that you got to d- d- take a certain amount of time and just set that aside for your for your craft whatever that might be yeah and and Dave, I mean David Allen talks about this. I mean mm-hmm. that's the, the the concept of um, scheduling time to do certain things. And Merlin's talked about that a a bunch on. Okay, don't you know, don't do email throughout the day. Say I'm going to spend an hour, whatever time it is, and say this is the time that I'm going to process email. Done. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so good, cool. Um, well, that was that was a nice little intro. Um, we. <laughs> We have, I mean, just to transition a bit, we have something sad to announce, right? Oh yeah, well, a sad, couple, sad and happy. Well, a, well, a, a, a couple of sad things. Why don't you, Why don't you go first? Well, um, our famed show notes individual uh, Andreas um, let us know uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, or a week and a half ago, that um, just due to uh, you know constraints and lifestyle changes, um, he's not going to be able to to do show notes for us, and, and wrote us a really nice. Um, a, a nice message. Um, and so he, he wrote, um, I again find myself in the situation similar to last year, um, that I'm spending too much time on various things, um, and neglecting the family. Consequently, I've had to make some hard decisions and giving up the show notes for this podcast is unfortunately one of them. And, um, so it's, it, I mean, it's sad, sad for us to, um, to, to lose Andreas and, um, in the, in that capacity. But, um, you know, uh, we, I'm, I'm grateful. And, and I know I, you share this as well to, to all the, the work and, and time and commitment and everything that he's put in, um, uh, to help us with the, with the podcast over the last couple of years. And he's been, um, uh, a, a really great uh, addition. It was it was fantastic to meet him uh, in person at IAFP last year, uh, and, and just uh, really, I mean, per, on a personal level, for me, when when Andreas um, suggested to us, you know, back early on in the podcast that he wanted to to do the the show notes to, you know, from a, he, he'd mentioned something about a selfish reason so he could hear the, the show sooner than what we were able to put it out. That was, um, a point in this process for me that was like, Oh man, someone actually is listening and caring about this. And so it was like, we, we should, we need to spend more time on this. We yeah. Like to- so, somebody that we don't know and have never met. Yeah. Yeah. It, right. Exactly. In another it, country, in another country. Um, so, so we we need to pay more attention to what we're doing because because you, know, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like suddenly it, it matters. Yeah, and so but but um, so it's a, a fond a fond farewell and, and a thank you to to Andreas for for everything that he's done for the show. Um, 
in the in the last uh, couple of years, and and he he mentioned that he's still gonna um, you know uh, uh, try to take time to to listen uh, to us. But we we appreciate everything he's done, and 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 un, you know understand wholeheartedly on 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 tough choices. Um, not tough. I mean, uh, you know, he, family versus the podcast. Wait, he he, he quit his job. He's a freelance consultant, and he has small kids at home. Why wouldn't yeah. he want to spend several hours a week doing a thing that's going to not make him any money? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Um, but it's been it's been fantastic to have him uh, with us, and, and we wish him all the best. And, and he's uh, a um, lifetime member of the Food Safety Talk family. Absolutely, he will be missed. Yes, and and thanks to, thanks to him. So um, for for every everyone who happens to be listening to this, you can um, uh, I mean you can point to that. Uh, that point, I think, in, in our podcast development, where when Andreas emailed us and, and mentioned that he'd like to do this, um, as as a reason why we're probably at you know fifty nine episodes here. Exactly. So so thank you. So that was as I said, it's sad and, and happy because we um, we're very happy to have him uh, as as long as we could. Indeed. So you said there were two sad things. Was oh well, I th- I thought you were going to talk about Scott Hurd and Wilbur Fagan. Oh no, um, I didn't. But so yeah, yeah, go ahead. And yeah, that. well, so um, and I wrote about this for my um, uh, IAFP president's column, which won't be coming out for a while yet, and I thought about turning it into a blog post, but basically. Um, uh, within within 24 hours uh, and within the, the deadline when I had to get my president's column written, so it was kind of on the top of mind for me, um, we found out that Wilbur Fagan passed away. Uh, Wilbur was 100 years old. He was uh, uh, very active in the IAFP before it was the IAFP, back when it was IAMFIS. And uh, there's a wonderful uh, obituary that um, uh, just just came out after, after I had written my uh, – um, uh, president's column, uh, David Tharp uh, of IAFP sent us uh, Wilbur's obituary, and we'll link to that in the show notes. But basically, just a, a guy that just did a tremendous amount uh, for for food safety, and again, lived to a hundred years old. He was going to be a hundred and one this year, and then literally the next day, I read on Barf Blog about Scott Hurd passing away, and Scott was. Um, uh, a, vet, a veterinarian uh, and uh, was in academia at the time he passed away, but um, prior to that had worked uh, at USDA FSIS and was quite high up uh, in, in, in that group in terms of food safety policy and was like, you know, about my age and half, you know, so half of Wilbur's age. So in his fifties and it's just like, it just, just really just was kind of a, a whack upside the head, you know, that, wow. Um, you know, you might get 50 years, you might get 100 years, but man, you better you better make sure that however many you get, and you never know how many you're going to get, you better make sure they count. So, um, and I won't I won't spoil the president's column, but anyway, I I, I waxed uh, poetic about that for for a bit. So, um, anyway, just just a kind of a you know, it's it's sad when people die, um, but it's an opportunity for those of us that are still here to say, hey, gosh, what am what am I going to do today? And what am I going to do to, you know, make the world a better place? Yeah. And, and, um, and hopefully we are, you know, leaving some impact like, like both, um, Wilbur and Scott did that, that the stuff that, that both of them, um, contributed to and, and wrote and, and put out there into the, into the world, um, you know, continues to, to live on and they've been able to shape, um, you know, thoughts and, and discussions, uh, is going forward. I mean, that's really all 
all I can can ask for, right? Is is to be able to to make some sort of um, impact that you know results in you know less sick people or or whatever. And, mm-hmm. and I think both of them absolutely did, did that. That's the that's the, the the testament to the to the work they put into things. Exactly. Yeah, it's sad, sad stuff. I mean, we we talked a lot about this with the with Bill Keen's passing, and um, it, it's one of these things where um, we want to make sure we we remember how we got to where we are and, and the the lessons that others have you know, learned for us, so we can continue to advance what we do. That was that was all very cryptic, but yeah, no, I've, no, not cryptic at all. I think right straight into the point. Oh, cool. Well, yeah. So two two sad things. That's true, or three. Um. So we we you know we uh, episode fifty eight um, was a little different format uh, for us, and we had talked in uh, fifty six and fifty seven about we running out of things uh, to do uh, <laughs> in the. Uh, history of IAFP and um, the former uh, bug trivia. And so we went with outbreak flashback and uh, still I don't, do we have a listener suggestion, Don? We, Don has a suggestion. I'm, we're going to go with this one, but do we, have we heard from anybody? Um, I, I ha- we have not. Yeah. I didn't think so. Me either. Um, so let's do outbreak flashback, and again, it's it's discoy because it's a flash. It's a outbreak flashback. Do 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 do. Um, <laughs> that might have been a video game. I don't know if that was disco. Um, but Don, you you suggested um uh this uh outbreak that happened in two thousand and seven. Uh, botulism associated with canned chili sauce, uh, linked to uh, castleberries. Um, as as a uh, you know, one of our, I guess, uh, so the idea of out- outbreak flashback is seminal outbreaks. I don't know if I use that word right, but, but outbreaks, notable outbreaks that, that have mattered in our field, things where, um, where individuals got sick and, and we've changed what we do, or we've learned something new as a result of this. And, and these are, you know, what, what we want to do is sort of collect these as part of the podcast and say, this is, these are the things that someone who is, who is new into, um, the world of food safety, this is one you should know about. This is one that, um, that, that matters, uh, for, for where we're on how we got to where we are today. So this outbreak happened in, um, July, uh, 2007, or at least it was, uh, investigated over the, the summer of 2007. And, um, uh, Center for Disease Control, FDA were involved, and then there are some public health officials in Texas uh, and Indiana. Um, there were eight cases of botulism uh, reported to CDC, all of them linked to uh, Castleberry's brand chili products. Um, in July uh, of, of 2007, FDA had pieced things together and issued this consumer advisory and Castleberry's uh, issued a voluntary recall, um, and uh, it, it had—I mean, basically every type of canned chili sauce and other meat products that went through their uh, their were process, they, they recalled everything. Um, but this was, uh, you know, botulism in our in our canned food supply had been virtually at at zero for thirty, forty years almost. 
Um, so this was one of our, our first sort of major cases. Uh, and, and, and there was, there was a lot that, uh, that, that kind of went into this, um, from, uh, you know, things that were, uh, shown in the Castleberry plant investigation, uh, about a lot of, uh, food safety violations, um, and especially around, um, equipment, uh, and, and not, um, uh, not keeping things in, in good repair to make sure that they're able to, uh, their process is able to, um, to hit the critical control points for, um, for processing. Right, and 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 the uh, this was on the top of my mind when we talked about creating outbreak flashback because at the time, and this is you know going back a month or six weeks now, I was teaching a better process control school, and you know one of the things that I always used to say at the better process control school is that the industry, canned food industry, has a tremendously safe record. Um, in part because of the Better Process Control School and this and the stuff that we teach people and the stuff that we talk about, um, and and then this this uh, Castleberry's outbreak came along, which was uh, you know just to to you know basically made everybody sort of wake up, everybody in that industry wake up and pay attention to what was going on and. And and I had I had added a, after the outbreak, I had added a few slides to my remarks when I teach a better process control school. But I realized that I didn't actually – I hadn't actually gone back and read some of the details. And so one of the things that we'll link to in the show notes is – and again, you know, uh, this was – I linked to this or I, I made this link uh, back before we had Bill Marler on the podcast last time. But boy, you know, it's it's good. I mean you know, people love to love to hate Bill, but – He's done a tremendous service by some of the documents that he's put on the web, and we'll link to a document, which is basically the uh, Castleberry Food Company Establishment Inspection Report, um, which is the follow-up from the outbreak, um, and it's it's a PDF document. It's a scanned PDF with hand redactions of, of trade secret type information, but basically it goes through in step-by-step detail of what FDA investigators did when they visited the plant. And this is the kind of information that you can only get through Freedom of Information Act, right? It's not the kind of stuff that FDA is going to voluntarily put on their website. But it's, it's again, and for food safety nerds, and especially for people like me who, who have taught these better process control schools for years and have told people this stuff that's important, it's... I don't want to say gratifying to see, but it's it's very it's very interesting to see the the problems that happen because the things that happened in the Castleberry's plant were well known to people that understand the safety of canned food products. So I'm just going to read to you from a section of this report where it says so and one of the one of the things, so a little bit of background again for those of you that may be not familiar with with retorting. So one of the things that's very important in a re, so let, let's let's assume that we're processing in steam in a retort. And again, there are steam, there are retorts that don't process in steam. There are ones that use hot water. There are ones that use steam and air as a mixture to provide something called overpressure. And again, I don't want to turn this into a better process control school lecture. But basically, the idea is that typically in a retort, you're processing in steam, and you don't want to have water in the retort when you're processing in steam. That is because steam imparts much more energy 
to the canned food versus water. And that's because, again, if you think back to your days of food engineering, if you've had a class in food engineering or physical chemistry, if you've had a class in physical chemistry, or even even just chemistry, if you've had even a high school class in chemistry, steam contains more steam at 100 degrees contains more energy than water at 100 degree liquid water at 100 degrees because of the latent heat of vaporization right so to turn a molecule of water at 100 to a molecule of steam at 100 you have to add extra energy to cause that phase change from liquid water to to uh, a water vapor or or steam um, and and so so steam is a very efficient heating medium water not so much and so but in a retort, you are constantly pumping steam in. The steam is contacting the inside of the retort. The steam is contacting um, uh, cans in the retort, and that steam is giving up its energy and turning into condensate, water condensate. And so, as a as a in the in the act of retorting something, you have to drain the water from the retort. And so you have valves which need to be working and they need to be designed in such a way that the operator of the retort can see that the valve is working and can see that the, 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 the water is coming out of the retort. And so, again, I'm going to read to you from a section of this report uh, that, that Marler put on his website. He says that, uh, and the report says the, the water valve on this you know, redacted was taken off and everyone could see that the wet, the valve had worn a deep groove in the surrounding rubber gasket. This groove prohibited proper seating of the valve to stimulate, to simulate a normal day of production. This cooling water valve was opened and closed several times after each successive use. The valve was observed to increase in the leakage amount by the last test. The valve produced 170 mLs. That's almost two liters of water in a 60 second period. Clearly this valve was leaking a substantial amount of water into the bottom of redacted. This simulates what would occur during a cook cycle as the workday progressed. If actual cans were in the retort during this challenge, it would have increased the amount of water in the bottom of the retort from condensation. Redacted with a damaged cooling water valve was shown to have an excess of water in the bottom of the retort during the test cook cycle on uh, one of the days in, in, in question. Um, so uh, again, um, this, so it's not quite exactly what I said, right? So what I said was you have condensation, but then you also have this leaky valve, which is putting extra water into the retort. And so what that means is that any cans that are sitting in the bottom of this retort where there's this extra water, those cans are not being heated by steam. They're being heated by hot water, and that is a less efficient heating medium. And, and again, that's just one section of this multiple-page report, um, uh, yeah, 36-page report, which talks about uh, sort of uh, the, the, the need or the, the lack of proper maintenance of this equipment. Each one of these retorts needs to be properly maintained. Valves need to be, you know, closed when they're closed and opened when they're opened. And, um, you know, everything needs to work the way that it should. And that wasn't the case at the Castlebury's plant. And so, you know, all of this stuff was known to people in the industry. But, and again, you know, the food, the food industry is, is good because, you know, it's a good business to be in because people always have to eat, but, but it's bad because the margins are small. And when you're in a, when you're in a company that's under economic pressure from shareholders or from the owners to turn a profit, one of the things that you stop doing is you, is you cut or you cut back on regular maintenance. And, and in this kind of a 
process in this kind of a plant, that regular maintenance is absolutely essential to food safety. And so in an effort to, and again, maybe it was to save a buck, maybe it was just because people didn't realize maintenance was important, they stopped doing it. And lo and behold, it came back to bite them in, in a big way and, and people got botulism. So anyway, that's my long rant about the need for better process control schools, the need for regular maintenance, and and the importance of that um, with respect to this particular outbreak. So I've talked for a long, long time. Ben, are you still awake? I'm still, yeah, I'm still here. I'm awake. <laughs> well, I'm, any, anything to add? I, I, surprisingly, yes. <laughs> uh, um, what, yeah, one thing that I took out of um, this report uh, as well was around management um, decision making, and so you, you know, I mean, you, you you talked about the the um, importance of um, you know maintenance and, and following up. There's something in here that I don't quite understand, so I'm going to ask you for what what it means. But I'll read the paragraph, um, and it's about management making decisions. This is what to me led to the expanded recall. So the recorder chart from February 26th to May 22nd, 2007, was reading an average of 248 degrees Fahrenheit. However, a one-page work report issued by Redacted Technical Specialists states on May 30th, 2007, the bias on the recording uh, temperature device for the recorder chart was found at 124.4. In his own words, this, in this report, the specialist says, I checked the bias and found 124.4. That is far out of line. A high bias is four. Um, there are no records to show that management addressed the low pressure readings uh, on this equipment from February 26, 2007 until his visit on May 30, 2007 and continued to operate um, during this time span. So my, I guess my question for you is – do you know what that means? Uh, uh, the bias, uh, uh, you know, one twenty four point four and and four. What do those numbers mean? And and what is that measuring? And do, I. Do- I- yeah, that's a good question. I really don't know, but what I what I do know is that in in a retort you have you have two things. You have the temperature indicating device and the temperature recording device. And the temperature indicating device in most cases in, in old style retorts is a mercury and glass thermometer. And the nice thing about a mercury and glass thermometer is it's um, it's very reliable. It works on basic chemical principles. Mercury expands in exposure to heat and, and it fills the volume in the glass of the mercury and glass thermometer. Um, and so that is the official temperature indicating device of a retort. Um, now, there's, a, there's also two problems with a mercury and glass thermometer um, and why we don't want them in food plants, and that is because they contain mercury and they're made of glass. So there is a movement, um, and it's been slow because, again, the old mercury and glass thermometers are so reliable, but there's been a movement in place to, to, to change them to more modern thermocouples as the, you know, the, the kind that you and I are familiar with for doing temperature measurements on, on hot foods or cold foods, but again, designed to work at those higher temperatures. Um, so you have the temperature um, indicating device, and then you have the temperature recording device, and the recording device is part of this time temperature recorder, um, and that is typically a thermocouple, and, and there are specifications, and again, it differs depending upon whether you're regulated by USDA um, or FDA. Um, in both cases, the temperature indicating device 
the temperature recording device cannot be higher than the temperature indicating device. So if the mercury in glass thermometer says it's one, uh, it's 248, the temperature recording device uh, can can not be higher than 248 because the recording device is the official record that gets put in the books and that gets reviewed. And so you never want that to be higher than the official indicating device because that would be a, a fail a failed dangerous error. You think the retort's running at 250, but it's only running at 248. So so it can be they can be the same or it can be less. And I have to imagine that the bias has something to do with that differential. But if it's supposed to be four and the actual bias is 124 that to me seems really really bad <laughs> right yeah, yeah exactly like not yeah like, like 120 came, bad <laughs> yeah yeah exactly like turned up well past 11 bad. exactly um yeah so i don't i mean i don't know what the scale is and, and what i what i kind of took, took away from it is that something happened you know this this technical person came out may 30th found that there was an issue and, and had not been there or this recorder chart had been, you know, had been going since um, since February 26th. So you've got this long gap with with no one who's who's running the this retort, either recognizing that the bias is that high, or recognizes that the bias is is very high, but doesn't do anything about it. And you know that that's the that's where this whole management thing comes in. In, in for me, is uh, I had a, actually. A conversation a couple of weeks ago at a talk at Clemson um, with uh, uh, you know with a, a professor there, Scott Whiteside. I don't know if you know Scott, um, but we, we we were talking about retort, and I don't know this world hardly at all. But I was talking about it in the context of food handlers and this concept that the individuals running um, making some some decisions in a lot of processing. Um, facilities, the same as, as it is in, in a restaurant. These frontline folks are often the ones that that make the least amount of money that are that don't have technical, um, uh, you know, backgrounds. And and this to me is one of the ways why this something like this happens is you've got someone who knows that the numbers should look like something, doesn't know exactly why, um, is is responsible probably on a daily basis to making sure the numbers are supposed to match up, but doesn't think it's it's such a big deal. And, and either management wise doesn't they you know the, the company doesn't check it or they don't um, they don't have some sort of uh, you know value system to say look this really matters to us if these numbers are, are way out from a safety standpoint and so that you know th- this um, I, I I'm glad you use this as a uh, as an example because I, I think I knew I had never seen this document before this um, uh, you know this FDA report I, I knew the so, you know the summary of it that um, that Marler printed on his um, his blog and, and some of the coverage, but I, I you know it, it is fascinating to start looking at some of these very specific situations and then looking at um, what causes these things and, and how we can transfer that to to other companies and say, look, if you have a retort machine, you got the, you know these thing this thing exactly happened. Does your person who is responsible for monitoring this know how to look for this? And are they you know, actually doing it? And what kind of redundancies do you have in your system to ensure that they're actually doing it? Because if it doesn't work well, you've got, you know, 
eight, in this case, eight cases of botulism, which are not insignificant. It's not like eight cases of norovirus. It's a totally different type of pathogen, plus 91 different product items. Basically, everything that had happened on this line from February 16th on to July was, were recalled. So, um, so, so this is a big deal for you as a, as a company. It's not, you know, it's not a little bit of, of an issue. Exactly. So exactly. thanks for for including this. It's a it's a really good one. Yeah. Well, and you know, and I I was aware of the outbreak, and I I was you know when we when we decided we were going to do outbreak flashback, I did some searching, and it re- honestly I was not aware of this uh, redacted document um, uh, until I started searching for it, and I said, oh man, I mean, anytime, honestly, anytime there's a report about a food poisoning outbreak that has redacted stuff in it. I want to see. I don't care what it's about. I want to see it because because uh, you know it's got to be like this is like this is like the real deal, right? Right, uh, right. Yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. Um, maybe we need another just a spinoff of our food safety talk empire of redacted report talk. <laughs> sure. Just, just one, you know. Whenever these come out, we'll just do a just a, a quick a, a bang bang out. Uh, hey, well, here's the redacted report. Or, <laughs> Port that has redacted things, but um, cool. So, I uh, yeah, thanks, thanks for doing that. Oh, and I better uh, bookend this, right? Yes. With, uh, outbreak flashback. Outbreak flashback. Outbreak flashback. <laughs> All right. I know the listeners love that. No they one, do. You know what? No one's ever once commented on it, either positive or negative. Never, never, either way. I think they just ignore it. <laughs> like they pretend it doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Chapman didn't do that again, did he? Oh, <laughs> so embarrassing. Um, so, so we got some stuff um, to to talk about over the the next little little bit here, and I wanted to talk. I wanted to um, to start with. You and I being in the, the great state of Florida at the same time. In fact, in the same city of Orlando last week. Yes, and and, we and, and we wouldn't have even known we were in the same city except for our friend Michelle Daniluk, who lives in the state of Florida, who was not there at the time that we were there. Right. And, <laughs> Telling us that we were both there and she was not. And we, I had texted her saying, I'm going to be in Orlando for about five hours. And, and I don't have time to, to see you. And she goes, Don's here too. Or Don's there too. I'm in Nashville or right. Houston. Right. Nashville, I think. Yeah. So you were doing some work. Um, you are giving a talk to the Sprout Growers Association and then the, the FAFP. Right. So basically the Sprout Growers had asked me to come and give a talk, which uh, – and I've spoken at their meeting a couple of times and I was happy to do that. And then um, I mentioned to, again, our friend of uh, our friend and friend of the show, Michelle Daniluk, that I was going to be there. And, sh- and she said, oh, well, we should have a FAFP meeting and you can speak. <laughs> Perfect. So uh, I did, um, and they they were very gracious, and they scheduled that like you know in the same city at the same time, you know, the next day, so that I could do that. And then I got a very nice a very nice note uh, from Ken Ty- Tyrell, um, who is uh, 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 the current president of FAFP, and and he runs his he's a lead consultant for his own company, uh, foodsafetyresource.com, So we'll give him a little plug there. And uh, he just said, I wanted to thank you. He just sent me an email today. I wanted to thank you for being a speaker, and we we had forty two people there, and it was just a great, a well attended luncheon, and and you know the presentations were great, and your presentation was great, and just a really nice. Uh, 
really nice, really nice. And it was, you know, personalized too. I mean, he talks about his engineering background and he liked kind of the statistical math oriented approach to what I presented. And so anyway, just a really, a really nice thank you letter. So thanks to Ken for, for having me there and hosting me. And, and it was cool to be there, even though, even though I got only a limited amount of time to hang out with Michelle and no, no uh, amount of time to hang out with you. Yeah, it's, it's too bad. Um, and my, my trip was, um, actually has a little bit to do with why I was late to recording the podcast today. Ah, um, tell me so, more. Yeah, I will. I will. Um, so, uh, I, uh, over the last, I don't know, 12, 15 months or so, I, I don't think I've spoken too much about this on the podcast and I don't know if you, if I've talked to you about it, but I've been, um, s- uh, investigating a way for, um, for my group to create a certified food protection manager program. Um, and so for those uh, listeners who, who listen to us and are in the retail grocery store world, um, yeah, we, the FDA food code has a, um, a stipulation uh, in it that says uh, at all times of business operation, there's going to be someone who has training, who is there, food safety training, who is, is in charge and is, um, uh, has the knowledge on managing risks and also is in a management, you know, management position so they can oversee other individuals. And so, um, we in, in North Carolina, um, have been, uh, using serve safe for, uh, for quite some time, uh, program from the national restaurant association, uh, foundation. And, and I've been, um, you know, I've been, I've been fairly, uh, public about this. It's not, it's not my favorite program, um, and, and so instead of, um, you know, trying to work within, work at it from the inside, um, we decided, uh, with a, a couple of colleagues here that we would start investigating how to create our own training program and what we needed to do to, um, to meet the requirements and, um, uh, in, in the food code. And so for, for a few months, I had a individual who was working for me that was, that it started investigating, um, this concept of ANSI certification. So, um, not to get too far in the weeds on this, but to, to have a certified food protection manager program as per, um, the conference for food protection, they set up some, uh, a council on standards, including, um, uh, what, what an exam would look like. And, and that was accepted by FDA a while ago. And it has to go through the American National Standards Institute. And, and to date, there's really only four or five, um, you know, historically groups that have gone through this, this process. And so we started investigating what that, why kind of that was and got into this world of it. It's that way because you need to have a massive exam question bank. You have to start with somewhere between 3,000 and 4,000 questions, and you have to test them. And then at all times, you have to have an exam bank of 1,000 questions. And then the logistics of running a exam world were, became really, really daunting. So we, so we started actually going down this route of uh, doing a job task analysis and, 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 and trying to see whether we could do this and run everything in-house. Um, at the same time... Um, my 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 dean uh friend friend of the show uh and and now new food safety talk uh, listener rich linton um oh is he a listener he he is as of as of last week he so you know Ruth, our good friend of the show ruth petran um talked us up uh to him and he emailed me and said 
and I hear, I know you're doing this podcast. Send me the details. You told me about it. <laughs> oh, awesome. And so I got a message from him saying, this is great. Um, last, you know, last week. Um, so anyway, he, he, uh, in his former life at, at Purdue University, back also, when he back when he used to do real work instead of being he, a dean, right? Now right, that we right. know he's listening, I'm just gonna yeah. just uh, you know rag on him endlessly. <laughs> I that Don said that, Rich. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> no. Um, back back in his in his previous days, he uh, he also investigated this concept of of moving away from. Um, the Serve Safe program and, and creating something for grocery stores, and so he, along with some others, um, uh, created a, a program called Safe Mark, Super Safe Mark, and, uh, that's now run by FMI. and And he suggested that there is a group in Florida, in Orlando, called the National Registry for Food Safety Professionals, who are exam folks. And he said that you know he he looked at going down this route and was like I just you know I've, I I knew these individuals from CFP and this you know they they are a service provider that does what you're trying to do and takes it out of your hands and you don't have to worry about it. So I went uh, what I was doing in Florida is I, I I went down there for the day and, and met with them and saw what their their process is and and we talked about um, how we might have a partnership and, and work together on stuff and it was I mean this is. Uh, to me, one of the things that I want to really focus on for the next couple of years is is creating this this training program. And, and what I haven't told you about, or, or sort of anybody, any of our listeners about the difference or what we're trying to do with ours is not make uh, a, a training program that is um, traditional lecture textbook based. But we we're looking at developing our materials around um, case studies, around nine cases of actual outbreaks that have happened, and teaching. Um, managers or people in charge about how to manage food safety by by deconstructing these these outbreaks. I mean, exactly what what <laughs> what we do on the podcast and what we just did with Castleberries is here are the things that led to the problems. Now let's teach you about you know if, if we looked at, at Castleberries as, as the example, um, this happened. Now I'm going to teach you about why that happened and teach you about the the management pra- practices behind it that could have uh, reduced the likelihood. And I'm going to teach you about um, uh, Clostridium botulinum. And, and so, so instead of, so we have this kind of matrix set up of, um, of our cases and our learning objectives in, in each. Um, and, and we've now, uh, you know, found this, this group that, that can be um, uh, a, a nice partner with us on the exam. Cause really all I want to do is develop, a program and evaluate it and then have somebody run it. And I really don't want to get into the exam business. Um, but it's, you know, this has been a, a, a focus. It was just a really great day to spend um, with these folks. And, and Rich actually happened to be in town at the same time. So, um, so I spent some time with dinner with him uh, and then flew back home. But it was like, I mean, this goes back probably eight or 10 years on the concept of food safety info sheets and a lot of the stuff that, that we do on Barf Block is, okay, so you collect all this information and we know lots of things about case studies, but how can we translate that into something that's useful for a manager and then teach them in, in an experiential way and in, in, some, in a way that's grounded in education theory um, and, and behavioral theory? Uh, on on food safety issues and so so yeah so that's what that's what i was doing and it was and so why i was late was i've been following this up or following this path for for a while and and this morning um announced this to our cooperative extension agents who will be um 
if they if they opt in, uh, there'll be delivery um, our, our delivery mechanism across North Carolina uh, sometime uh, later this year. And and so they had some really good questions about what this means, and because they're currently delivering ServeSafe and and where this kind of all goes, um, uh, for, you know, for us. So um, their questions. Um, uh, I, you know, I had them there, and I wanted to capture that and not cut it off. Um, but it's it's kind of an exciting spot for for us right now. Oh yeah, it it sounds absolutely fascinating. And I, you know, for years I have been interested in ServeSafe, and you know, there's a way you can become a ServeSafe instructor by basically petitioning out of the program. And I've been very frustrated by that, and the fact that you know that really you're gonna you're gonna make me go and sit and take the ServeSafe exam. I mean, I was teaching right. HACCP in in 1990. You know, you really you really Anyway, it just, just, just irritates me. Um, but And the other problem, too, that we've had with doing something like this in New Jersey, and I've talked it up to our um, uh, uh, family. Uh, consumer sciences? The, yeah. Yeah. Consumer health. I think we're family and consumer health sciences in New Jersey now. Now that's coming back to me um, uh, to try to get them to do stuff like serve safe. And it's just it's really outside their comfort zone. So I think it's fantastic that you have agents in North Carolina who are willing to do it. And then obviously, if you want to move them off of serve safe, which I think is probably not a bad idea. I worry a little bit that there's only one game in town or there's kind of like this 800 pound gorilla that is serve safe. And, you know, like you, I share some concerns about that program, and I think that we, we want com- competition in the marketplace. We want diversity. You know, what we really care about is having trained managers that know this stuff, and so that's that's what's important. So I, I think it's, I mean, now that I understand all the, the background and the details, absolutely, you made the right call by not getting on the get call with me sooner, because, yeah, the you know, th- this is, and this is um, folks that are on the call who are in extension understand this folks that are on the call who work with volunteers in any capacity, whether that's boy Scouts or girl Scouts or 4-H or, or whatever, if they're active within IAFP for, for that matter. Um, when you work with volunteers, you're relying on people whose salaries you don't pay to get stuff done. And so it's it's important when they're paid employees that they buy in, but it's even more important with volunteers. You really have to have people like get it and be engaged and be passionate because they're giving of their time of their free time when they could be spending, you know, reading comic books or watching TV or playing with their kids. They're giving of their free time to go out and do this thing. And so you, you really want that. Now the agents are being paid, but, but Hey, those agents, um, you know, they're being paid to do their job, but they don't have to work with you. They can go do whatever they want, right? They don't have to be doing surf safe training or whatever kind of training, right? They can go run their own programs without you. And so, yeah, you want their buy-in, you want their engagement because otherwise it's not going to be successful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you, you nailed it that, um, the, you know, the way that the cooperative extension structured in a lot of States is, um, the, the local needs dictate what the delivery is uh, at a County level. And so I can, I can come up with things at the state level, but if it doesn't fit with their, you know, what their local needs are, then, then it's no good. And if the local needs aren't, you know, directly in line with what I'm working on, it's, it, you know, they, they can choose and they can pick and choose with how they, how they deliver it. Um, and so what, um, 
you know, what, what I've really kind of focused on in our communication um, with with agents on this are, is kind of twofold. One is we ServeSafe was a good place for us to start. Um, and Angie Fraser, my predecessor, uh, as well as uh, John Rushing and Lynn Turner uh, back um, 12 years ago, uh, started with this process. And Dave Green, also at, at NC State, started this process and said, okay, we, we, we realize that uh, across the state we have a need for food manager protection training, can we train a, a, a cadre of, uh, of um, agents to, to deliver this? And what, you know, what, what are our expectations? And they, they, they you know, they, they went down the road of, uh, of surf safe. And I think because it's, it's there and, and, and now we're at a position where there's a group of um, 35, 40 agents that are comfortable with that material, comfortable enough that I think that they're ready to move to, to a, a, a different, type of program where we're focusing not on knowledge change and, and developing individuals that can take exams, but, but we're really training a, a, a managers on how to run a kitchen from a food safety standpoint. And, and so, I mean, you, you, ha- you hit it exactly. I, I'm not having this conversation right now. I'm not going to, to Florida last week to talk with the National Registry folks. I'm not, um, you know, having, hiring uh, Matt Eagle, who uh, works for me to, to work on this. Without a, a strong group of agents that are that are already committed to this area, because if I don't have a group that have already established credibility and trust within this um, within this sector as as being um, food safety experts, local food safety experts, then we can't we can't shift that needle. We can't move it. So I'm you know. Uh, um, constantly grateful to, to the work that happened before me, uh, but recognizing in the same way that that's where we are today. How do we, how, how do we advance this? What, what's, what's our next, our next step? And, and, and for us, it's, um, it's, it's this changing the way that we deliver it to make, um, uh, you know, really focus on, on the culture and organizational behavior as well as teaching the, the technical aspects. Cause I don't want, um, I don't want a state full of managers that are really good at exams. I want a state full of managers that, um, know what to do when someone vomits in their restaurants and and how to clean that up and and the limitations of uh, of certain sanitizer um, agents when those situations that they're they're really doing hazard analysis and risk management um, in in real time that's that's the goal and that might sound kind of lofty but I think we've got a, a good group of individuals that that have a knowledge base from ServeSafe, but how do we move them into that next step? So it's it's very exciting for me, um, because and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. I mean, we move on to something else. But um, uh, but but it's it's fun to be able to dabble in this uh, in this area, and and maybe it grows, maybe uh, maybe not. But uh, it, to me, it's worth the it's worth the investment of time right now. Well, and and it's interesting because, like you said, you want managers who know what to do. But on the other hand, you have to also fit that within the constraints of the real world. Like they, they, they will, they will have to pass an exam, right? It's right. not like so. So you have all of the old strictures, and you have to certify these people, and there has to be a certification process, and there has to be paperwork, and there has to be bookkeeping, and there have to be tests, and people have to pass the tests. But then on top of all of that, you also want it to be a thing where it makes a difference for people. And, and, you know, it makes a difference on the, uh, you know, to to the individual patrons of an individual restaurant that, yes, it makes a difference that we have a, a trained manager, not because they have a certificate, but because they know what to do when something bad happens or they know what to, to, to be alert for to change. Right. And, and to be able to be nimble and control that system a little bit. So, 
um, to give you an example, and we've already dropped Bruce's name, but and we we've talked about this this paper that that her and, and Craig Hedberg and, and colleagues did uh, in Minnesota multiple times, and I've tweeted about it a bunch, and we we have this conversation a lot about this this idea of. Um, you know, overall inspection results not being linked to outbreaks, but there are some very, um, you know, specific stuff that came out of uh, out of her work in Minnesota that show while the inspection result might not matter, there are certain indicator um, activities, tasks, whatever, whatever we want to call it, that do pop up in inspections that matter. That kind of stuff needs to go into this, and it is. I mean, that that's in our process, but. But teaching people about the risk factors in a in a, in a st- sort of standardized, structured way, and not having that um, flexibility to add in new information that really matters from an organizational behavior standpoint, um, is was was our frustration with the current system. So so let's go ahead and build something our own that we own, and knowing that they're going to have to still make you know hit this this standard of um, a, a, of a you know, a, a national exam, but, but we'll, we'll be able to, to use compelling, uh, information to get them, uh, to, to hopefully impact how they manage and how they run their business, which, when, you know, when I frame it that way, it gets a lot of buy-in from, from folks in public health, because they're the ones who are often, um, seeing that disconnect between someone who has passed an exam and someone who's not managing risk correctly. Um, right or well, currently right. is, is value, but right, right, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's yeah, it's it's really fun. I mean, as as I go through this process in my career, this is one of the things that um, that I want to try out and, and make sure you know, what, you know, why not me? Well, and <laughs> like, and it's it's kind of like that classic extension stuff where like we're moving away, hopefully, from the days of pretest and post-test and more to behavior change. And I know this has been something that's been of interest to you since your PhD, right? Looking at videotaping people in kitchens in Canada to see, you know, the impact of, of an intervention on, on behavior change. And it, it is really, it is a tough nut to crack. Um, and, and on the one hand, it, it has a lot of really nice elements to it. On the one hand, it's a sort of a traditional extension program done in a traditional way, but you're looking at changing it and you're looking at, okay, let's move it to something that really matters. And I mean, it's just, it's got a lot of really nice elements in it, both, both from a practical point of view, making people's lives better, you know, engaging your agents, but also it's, it's really a relatively untapped area of research, right? Like there's not a lot of people that are doing research that like this could, this could turn into not just a nice extension piece of work, but it's also a nice research piece of work. If you can really, you know, it gives you a way to get handle on data, you know, that you wouldn't otherwise have access to and see, okay, what does make a difference in terms of getting people to do the right thing? Absolutely. Uh, You know, I mean, that is, that's, that's the model, right? Or at least that's my, my model here. And I say mine, I mean, it's the model that, that I've, I I took from, from Doug's process and what, what he did way back in Guelph is let's, let's develop some stuff that's based on the best available information. We go into the literature and find out how people learn and then let's test it, you know, that and and evaluate it. And, And if someone else, I mean, the thing is, if the, the, if we learn something through this process that, you know, NEHA or ServeSafe, which are really the other two groups um, that offer food, you know, certified food protection manager training, that they take out of this, that we, you know, we do this work and, and they go ahead and, 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 you know, a couple of years from now and say, oh, well, looks like they learned something. Let's address how we we're delivering it. And they switch what they do. 
or not. I mean, whatever that, that we make some sort of impact um, uh, out there greater just by by doing the research and publishing it. Then that that's all worth it. I mean, you know, we have this this concept of better better for the state of North Carolina, hopefully on you know better better trained and, and implemented food safety practices, but then having the chance to maybe impact what others are doing and reading and and um and changing how how people are trained. Uh yeah, I mean that's that that's a that's a home run for for me. Uh in you know for in in what my goals are. Yeah, absolutely. It's fun. So, it's good stuff. Yeah. So I want to I want to change gears a little bit and and still uh, talk about um, uh, food safety. <laughs> oh God! Uh, I had a good segue and then and then the conversation moved along. So I want to talk about um, an interesting ex- extension question that came to me via actually via the department chair of our uh, uh, family and home and health science thing thingy <laughs> tell me again what the family and consumer science health science. yeah here my wife is shouting at me from the background too uh, fam, family and consumer health educators i think they're called oh, yeah. um anyway um and i want to i want to pose a question to you so if this came to you as an extension question how would you answer it and then i'll tell you uh how i answered it and we'll, we'll see if we're on the same page so um so this email again came to me from from one of my extension colleagues and it came to her from somebody who runs a farmer's market and so the the question is that we the farmer's market in question and it's a farmer's market in new jersey and we'll make it anonymous we'll leave out their name we have a potential new vendor who makes granola bars using local honey, grains, etc. And because they are in Pennsylvania, okay, so it's right, you know, so it's it's a farmers market that's close to the Pennsylvania border, and that doesn't really limit it because it, you know, it, basically all of New Jersey is close to the Pennsylvania right. border. Um, uh, they're in Pennsylvania, and so this vendor falls under Pennsylvania cottage food law, and what that means is that. That Pennsylvania vendor makes food in their home kitchen. They make this granola bar in their home kitchen. So the farmer's market person says, we got the okay from our township health department. So the New Jersey Health Department looks at the product, looks at the fact that they're making it under cottage food laws in Pennsylvania and says they're okay. Um, and then, But then this person goes on to say, we currently require that all value-added foods be produced in a certified kitchen and health department licenses are required. Okay. And so my, my question to you, which was the question to me is what should they do? Well, good question. Um, and, and, and I think the, your, your intonation um, in the way you asked the question around, <laughs> was it a leading question? Well, a little bit, but, but leading I, the so, witness. Yes. Yes. So, so here's the, the, I mean, the first thing I think that, that probably, um, the, the way you asked it is using local honey grains, et cetera. I want to know what et cetera is. I would also want to know, um, I, I guess what the process is, if there's any process and if it's granola bars that are sort of not cooked or, or whatever, I want to know more about it. Um, and, I'd also w- want to know the local health department that okayed it, what that means. You know, and, and you, you mentioned a little bit about that, that they, um, 
I guess some assumptions on that that they looked at the process or the product and said, okay, this isn't this is low risk or or what they're doing is is, is fine. But I'd want to know more about that. I want to know what they okayed. Um, and what the guidance that they are using to okay, or what the law they're using to okay that um, would be, and I, I guess as things like this pop up to me, I I want to make sure that we've we've crossed all the the right questions off um, on it. It sounds like, and, and this becomes bigger, right? I guess, and then maybe that you you thought the same thing that this is like a reciprocity situation from, you know, so, so we think we, um, we, we see this quite a bit in North Carolina, South Carolina, um, you know, state line, uh, town, towns or, or cities where, um, North Carolina has really got a, as a state would either agree to or not agree to how something in South Carolina is produced and say, okay, well, as long as you're following those state laws, then we're good to go. Uh, it would be very surprising in, in our state that a local health department would make that reciprocity call, that this would probably go to the state level and then that they would um, do, you know, do the things that, that I just talked about in, in reviewing, um, reviewing that. So that, I mean, that's, I guess, the regulatory side of things. I would, um, if it's, if it's, this is like a no cook kind of granola bar, I'd want to know how it's made or sorry, how it's packaged as well on whether they're selling this, uh, as a individual meal or if it's, uh, you know, bags of, of them that are, you know, I don't know. So, you know, so how they're basically how they're packaged. Um, and then really look at, um, it might be, produced under the uh, the Pennsylvania cottage law that or at least exempt or that they're allowed to do this but I would want to know how they're identifying um, you know hazards reasonably likely to occur <laughs> and then uh, what they're doing to manage those I mean this is this is a pretty loaded question for me I think it it, it, it requires some more um, investigation and more questions and that, that everyone who might be impacted by this, I mean, the, the reciprocity thing seems like it could be setting a weird kind of precedent that, oh, well, as long as it falls under, it's okay in, in Pennsylvania under their cottage law, which I don't know a whole lot about, then, then anything that shows up in our farmer's market should be fine. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a very interesting answer. Um, and, (laughs) And, and that's why we do the podcast. It's uh, different answers. It's it's an answer that I might have given on a different day. It's an answer that I might have given <laughs> earlier in my career. Um, the answer that I gave was based, and <laughs> this is terrible, but hey, we're all about telling the truth here. The answer that I gave was based on the idea that I wanted to send this person on their way and not keep having email with them. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, um, so your I, your question about knowing more about the process and and so it, it, like for example, if this if this person had been a New Jersey entrepreneur that's making granola bars and was wanting me to write a letter about whether their process is safe, absolutely. If I'm putting my name on the line to say this is safe or this is not safe, I'm going to want a whole lot more information. But 
my client in this case is the New Jersey person, not the Pennsylvania person. And so I, I and, and honestly, they're coming to me because I'm the expert. And so anytime I'm going to go and ask them for more information or for details, I know that that's going to come back to me to answer that question. Now, I guess I could, um, I guess I could sh- shoot, you know, I could drop Kathy Cutter's name in there and, right, right. and, and send them to their local expert in state college, which is geographically further away from the location in Pennsylvania than, than Rutgers is in New Brunswick. But hey, that's, it's their state. It's their problem, right? So, so I suppose I could have sent them back that direction. So what I said was, um, and, and this is my opinion, as, as long as the local New Jersey Health Department has granted their approval – I don't think there's a legal question, right? So ultimately, it's the local health department that has jurisdiction over what happens at that farmer's market. Now, you're right. Um, they could pass it up the chain of command to the state. As we've talked about before on the podcast, New Jersey is a home rule state, right? So, and yeah, what so that means is that situation. the locals the locals uh, run their own show and, and there, there really aren't resources if you pass it up the chain to the folks in Trenton. Now, you could you could pass it up the chain and you might get an answer, but – Again, it's kind of home rule, and so they're running their own show. Um, what what I was concerned about is if – so the person said that they require all value-added products to be produced in a certified kitchen, and this vendor is not doing that, right? They're right. not doing that because because that is not required by Pennsylvania law. So if you look at the le- – and I'm not a lawyer, right? But if you look at the letter of the law, that vendor is not meeting – the farmer's market's requirements. They are not producing that product in a certified kitchen. And so that puts the farmer's market in a quandary. And to my mind, again, it might open them up for potential liability. Again, I'm not a lawyer, but if somebody ate this product and they got sick, they could come back and sue the farmer's market and said, well, your requirements say it has to be produced in a certified kitchen. And this product was not produced in a certified kitchen. Therefore, it didn't meet the requirements of your farmer's market. Um, So my advice to this person was you might want to modify your requirements that's uh, that's and and state that all food must be produced in compliance with state law in the states where the foods are produced well in, uh, or or i mean there's there's another option here that they could stick to their certified um kitchen and and, tur- say, and turn that vendor down or turn it back to the vendor and say if you want to get into our to your farmer's market, we need you to do this. Right. Now, we understand that a health department in Pennsylvania is probably not going to issue a license, but there are processes where you could go into a an inspected kitchen, a non-home kitchen, and do this. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I, th- I think that's a that's a, a good point as well. And I look, I, you know, I, I would look at it from the um, from that farmer's market um, management. Uh, perspective as well, and and if they really think that this is a vendor that can help them, then then they're allowed you know to to set you know um, guide guidance as they already have above and beyond what the or not guidance you know regulations or requirements above and beyond what the um, what the state law is. Um, I yeah, you know, but I would I, yeah, I, I would want to know more about ju- just because it's exempt. From a political standpoint, or I don't, and again, I don't know enough about the college law in Pennsylvania, but if it's if it's something that's not done, and it could be just a a product that that the individual who gave them that exemption or uh, allowed them to do it didn't understand the the risk associated with it, and that they're now faced with okay, is this a risky product or not? That they may want to set their own guns. I don't, but I mean, I, I waffle back and forth because I think that, um, 
just because it's not it's produced in a certified kitchen and a health department puts in a license that doesn't make it any safer or less safe in in my mind um you know i think there are ways to to do this yeah (laughs) yeah well and my and my last sentence in the email finally touches on food safety right and it says all of that said a granola bar is a fairly low risk product it likely has a low water activity which means it won't support the growth of foodborne pathogens if the producer uses high quality ingredients that are pathogen free and handles handles it in a sanitary manner the overall risk should be low and i'm hoping there's enough weasel words in there to 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 kind of you know qualify my answer and to and to, <laughs> to yeah, well, negate me from assuming any liability <laughs> Well, and, yeah. Well, but it also goes back to, to my you know my earlier comments is there's they really haven't presented you with enough information on right. what you know that they're not asking for is this absolutely safe? And in fact, as you said, the question is is it okay? Well, regulatory wise, yeah, it looks like it's okay if the health department said it's okay. Right. And um, and what I, and what I didn't want to do is I didn't want this New Jersey person to put me in touch with a Pennsylvania person so I could evaluate her recipe because oh, yeah, I no, really exactly. don't I really don't want to be doing that. And and honestly, if 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 that was asked of me, I would say, look, you need to talk to the folks at Penn State. Yeah. Well, cool. <laughs> so uh, anyway, if I was younger and had more energy and free time, I would have uh, I would have waited in uh, with both feet just like you did. <laughs> well, well, potentially I was just trying to fill podcasts. <laughs> Who knows? I, I might I might just ignore the email. No. <laughs> I never ignore an no, email. I always get back to them. Right, right. Um, no, it's good. These are real. I mean, I think we're going to see more of these questions, more of these types of questions. I think as, I, as markets start understanding more about risk and, and their, their, um, where they sit in the regulatory world. Well, and this, this whole cottage food thing is – it's coming in a big way. These local farmers markets, it's coming in a big way. I don't – I absolutely agree with you. I think this is going to be become more and more common, right? Yeah. And And in fact, um, I think we've talked about <clears> – <throat> I've been working with a New Jersey entrepreneur who makes uh, low-sugar jams and jellies. Did we talk right. about this? We did. We did. Yeah. yeah. And, <clears throat> and in fact, that was such an interesting example. I'm teaching – in two weeks' time, I'm going to be in Chicago um, with Kathy Glass and uh, Linda Harris, who who downloads the podcast but apparently does not listen, um, just because we haven't mentioned that in a few episodes, uh, teaching uh, a workshop on IAFP-sponsored workshop on challenge studies. And uh, part of that workshop, we do breakout groups, kind of like a traditional HACCP class, except it's challenge studies. And we do breakouts. And one of the breakouts uh, that I wrote up for this week's class is on jams and jellies. And oh, cool. and so based on the, the water activity and pH we collected, and based on the help that you provided, uh, tracking down um, pH and water activity values for uh, cronuts, uh, cronut uh, maple maple jam cronut and uh, watermelon jelly. Um, uh, I, I have that information as well, uh, and, and so it, I'm going to pose it to the, the the students in the challenge study class as to what do you what do you do in this situation? Do you do a challenge study? Do you do modeling? Do you you know how do you how do you handle this? So. Cool. Um, yeah. So. So. Anyway, but this whole idea of entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs making traditionally low risk products. 
what's the standard, right? Like what, let's say we were put put on our, our hats for a minute, assuming we were uh, a, an extension specialist in the state of Pennsylvania and this person came to us. Well, okay. What's your process? What's your ingredients? Um, for sure. Somebody making granola bars in their home kitchen is probably not going to go out and buy a thousand dollar water activity meter. So what do you tell them? Right? Well, sure. Measure some water activities. Um, but how many water activities do you need to measure? Right. And, and do you want to do every batch or or, I mean, there, you, could, you could easily design a food safety program that would make it impossible for them to manufacture this, what is probably a fairly low water activity product. Yeah. On the other hand, we sure don't want another walnut jelly or, or cronut, uh, cronut maple jam, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. So, and, yeah, and so it's, there's somewhere in between here, right, on um, each individual business being able to say, okay, well, this is what the risk I have is. I need to have some sort of um, validated process. I'm going to need some data to show somebody at some point that I know a little bit about what I'm doing. Do I need to do it every time? Probably not. As long as I'm following what you know, what my what my conditions are, and what you know, I'm, I'm following the um, the you know the steps that I'm setting out my own plan. And I mean that comes back to the the whole idea of this preventive controls rule. But we can talk about it theoretically. I think the when an inspector shows up to this person's kitchen or, or whatever, um, I think we're going to see some growing pains in the next five years on this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. I mean, this, like I said, I started off by saying this cottage food thing is coming. Farmers markets coming in a big way. It's going to get more, uh, it's going to happen more sooner than it's going to happen less. And if it's happening more then it's just a probability game, we're going to have, we're going to have outbreaks. Right. And let's hope if we have outbreaks, there's staff and not botulism. Right. Um, but who knows, right. It could be, could be salmonella in a granola bar that's made with peanuts where you bought peanuts from somebody that, uh, is, you know, not a, not a good operator. So yeah. Interesting, interesting times. Yeah. Um, so you, you you sent me. Uh, I want to make sure we're we're cognizant of time, and you sent me some some pre some pre reading and a test. I, I mean, I have an exam today that I have to take with you. Well, you know, and we're 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 probably at a point in the podcast where we could uh, uh, where we could be um, we could be done, and and we don't need to give you a, a, a test to see your knowledge of statistics. But I I did do it recently for my graduate students, and it, the results were very interesting. So if you if you would like to 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 take the statistics test, we can do it. I feel like I'd like to because I I um I make no uh, qualms uh, about this. And also, I don't think I use that correctly, but I I make no claims that statistics are are something that I'm very good at. I've been fortunate enough to work with people that are good at statistics, and I understand enough about what they do to say what what I think we're doing. So I'm I'm slightly nervous. That you may that I may get a zero or a failing grade on this, but I'm also uh, I'm also okay with that. Well, and and remember that the last question is please indicate the level of your statistical experience from one to ten. Right. Okay. So so what I'll do is I will read the question, and then um, you can provide your answers as we go along. So um, so the question, and for those that want to play along at home, um, what we can do is we'll, we'll, we'll go through the exercise. Um, 
we can we can probably link to the file and then we'll 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 sound a spoiler horn or something so if people want to uh, want to look at the document and read the questions and then make up their own answers to it and then and then come back and find out the answers that's good and then we'll link to the peer reviewed publication um, that talks about it in the in the show notes so we'll we'll post the document on the website so you can get it without the answers and then we'll link to the 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 document with the answers and we'll talk about it but we'll we'll let you know before we're going to talk about it okay okay so oh you know what well hmm I was going to say we should talk. We could talk about it next week, but people can people can just pause the podcast, right? Yeah. Okay. So so here we go. Uh, Professor Bumbledorf, uh, and there's a wonderful picture of him. Um, uh, conducts an experiment, analyzes the data, and reports the 95 percent confidence interval for the mean ranges from 0.1 to 0.4. Now, there are six questions. They are true-false questions, and it reads, please mark each of the statements below as true or false. False means that the statement does not follow logically from Bumbledorf's result. Also, note that all, several, or none of the statements may be correct. Okay. And again, at this point, you can go to the, the, the link in show notes and take the test yourself. You can listen to Ben's answers and then we'll give you Ben's answers at the end. So, so question number one, the probability that the true mean is greater than zero is at least 95%. True or false? And you want me to, to state my, my answer now, right? I want you to state your yep. answer now. False. Okay. Number two. It's like I've failed already. <laughs> Be confident, Ben. Be confident. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, the probability that the true mean equals zero is smaller than 5%. True or false? True. Number three, the null hypothesis that the true mean equals zero is likely to be incorrect. True or false? True. Number four, there is a 95% probability that the true mean lies between 0.1 and 0.4. True or false? True. Number five, we can be 95% confident that the true mean lies between 0.1 and 0.4. False. Number six, if we were to repeat the experiment over and over, then 95% of the time, the true mean falls between 0.1 and 0.4. True or false? True. Okay. Please indicate the level of your statistical experience from 1, no stats course taken, no practical experience, to 10, teaching statistics at a university. 5. Okay. So now to... Um, to get the correct answer um, or to read the correct answer in context, I want to find, uh, find the web document. So what we'll do now is um, Ben will entertain you with a little bit of um, um, uh, elevator music while I go and Google something and then we'll come back. Now, again, this would be a good time to pause the podcast if you want to take the test yourself. So Ben, elevator music, please. Do, 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 do. Do, 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 do. I'm also dancing while we do this. Do, 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 do
finger claps, uh, finger snaps. Do, 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 do. Googly music, googly document. Also, I think we may just do another track of me doing elevator music. <laughs> okay. All right. So, um, okay. I am, uh, I am ready to reveal the answer. Okay. Okay. Um, the correct answer to each of the questions is false. <sighs> so you got Suck. four wrong and only two correct. And I'll read to you from the manuscript, which we will link to in the show notes. And again, this is something that I found uh, from um, uh, Andrew Gelman's blog, um, which we've talked about before on the on the podcast. Um, and so reading from the manuscript, it says, statements one, two, three, and four assign probabilities to parameters or hypotheses that something is that, – that is – to – there. Statements – we'll fix this in post. Statements 1, 2, 3, and 4 assign probabilities to parameters or hypotheses, something that is not allowed within the frequentist framework. And that's – again, we don't want to get into frequentist or Bayesian, but this is basically frequentist style um, uh, statistics. Um, Statements 5 and 6 mention the boundaries of the confidence interval, i.e. 0.1 and 0.4, whereas, as was stated above, a confidence interval can can be used to evaluate only the procedure and not a specific interval. The correct statement, which was absent from the list, is the following. If we were to repeat the experiment over and over, then 95% of the time... The confidence intervals contain the true mean. Gotcha. So, so number six and um, number five and number six are closer to being correct, um, but uh, but but are not because of again some tricky fancy wording are not correct. So, so thanks for playing along, Ben. Man, <laughs> I, I I really thought. Uh, you know, as I as I did this, that number four was the was the closest to what I was to, to the to to the like the truth of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and there's a very um, a very interesting uh, graph in the manuscript, a figure in the manuscript that that scores basically the the self rated experience and the number of endorsements, the number that you know that uh, essentially the number correct, and uh, so it's it's a it's a big scatter plot with lots of lots of variability. Will Will you still do the podcast with me? Oh, of course, of course. <laughs> and what what was really what would have been really well, truly instructive would would have been for me to have taken the test before I looked at the answer. But I'm but but I just I didn't even do it. I just went and found the paper and looked at the answer. So um, I'm sure I would have done horribly <laughs> because this this sort of thing always confuses me. It's it um, is quite confusing. It is it is. But but hey, that's uh, that's that's statistics for you. Well, good. See, I, I put myself out there. That's for the for the health of the podcast. Thanks, Ben. You're welcome. Um, uh, now I'm going to come up with a test for you. Okay, you do that. So it'll probably be one of those touchy feely, yeah, social thingies that there's no right answer, right? It'll be like, 
I'd be like, um, so you're all sitting in a circle. <laughs> it's a drum circle. Yeah, it's a drum circle, and someone brought a bong. Uh, what? <laughs> What are the correct? Uh, what, what's the correct etiquette in this case? Uh, uh, <laughs> oh, we'll see. We'll see. Um, what's that? What's that song? You pass the something from the right hand side. Dutchy, Dutchy. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. Uh, I'm not. I'm not familiar with their work. I, I think you're thinking of uh, uh, Gold Member. <laughs> uh, oh, Don. Hey. Um, we should probably call it a show. Um, I, I think that's a that's a pretty good idea, Ben. Yeah, you got a you got a day you got a, a big day ahead of you. Big travel big travel day. Big travel day. Uh, enjoy enjoy your time. And as always, this is um, this has been great. Um, we, I look forward to uh, chatting with you in a couple of weeks. And uh, um, may may all of your um, intervals be confident. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> all right. Talk, talk to you later. later. Bye. Oh, good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 hard stuff. I I really I really uh uh would not want to have ha- taken that test. <laughs> I really do not think I would have done well at all. Well, good. Good. I uh I, I yeah, I I mean I guess I thought I knew what it was what it was doing. And probably I mean that's the point of it, right? Right. To, yeah. Is to sort of show what you think you are reading is not what it really means. Yeah. Um, and we use it, but I'm glad, I'm also glad I'm not a stats person. <laughs> yeah. Cause and I know good stats people that, that help me with this stuff. Right. Right. Well, and I, what I try to do is I just try to run the test and then say that the test says this and then, and then, and then, you know, and to me, and I've, we, I think we've talked about this before and I talk about this every time a student comes to me for advice, they kind of think, well, what test should I run? It's like, well, stop. Let's, <laughs> let's look at the data. Okay, let's look at the raw data and tell me what it is that you're trying to prove. And right. let's see if we can make some and, – and then after we decide – again, it's the back to the storytelling thing, right? After we decide what the story is that we're telling, well, then let's talk about how we can buttress your conclusions with some sort of statistical test, realizing that even – and I've talked about this with – my graduate student, Dane Jensen, he has a wonderful um, XKCD cartoon about um, – I think it's about green jelly beans. And, and the idea is that if even with a confidence interval or even with a, a p-value of 0.5, that means that, that one out of every 20 times, your results are due to chance. 
So the idea is you, you test 20 jelly beans to see if they have an effect on libido. And uh, one time there's a correlation. So therefore, it's the green jelly beans that I mean, I'm, I'm getting the XKCD comic wrong, but we'll link to it in, in the show notes. But, but, you know, it's like one in 20, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's due to chance alone. So, so you, even, even if you get that number, you have to be suspicious of it, right? Right, exactly. Or if you, or if you have twenty different factors, let's say you're you're evaluating the effect of twenty different factors on, um, you know, chance of a foodborne outbreak, and one of them is significant. Well, guess what? That would have been, one would have been at, at a p value of zero point five. Yeah. it would have been significant uh, one in twenty anyway. It, what what I've what I've kind of learned in in you know the last couple of years on developing projects where, where we're trying to tighten up the or add some level of statistical testing is it's really key to have the conversation with someone beforehand about how should we set this up? Um, what are we trying to test? Um, and it, I, I see it more, you know, in, in some of the stuff that I do where we're looking for certain practices. Uh, you know, g- a good example is uh, Ben Raymond, uh, my, one of my grad students who's doing some work on YouTube videos. Um, the, the question uh, at the start of the project was, what are people displaying in YouTube videos from a food safety standpoint um, when, when cooking burgers? And we could have asked that we could have got to that objective by asking lots of different questions and ultimately what what he he found was that there are more by you know by his criteria more negative behaviors displayed in in video in youtube videos than positive behaviors but that was i mean essentially that's that's it um but we didn't we didn't do enough work legwork up front to to talk with um, with someone in statistics to say okay look, this is the kind of data that we think we're going to generate from content analysis here is what our coding scheme is can we by looking at this we have one question but we may find that the data shows us something interesting you know whatever that means with with Richard Fingers how should we ask these questions or how should we should should we set up our coding to see to allow for us to make some some um uh, some statements about these something interesting you know we i, I guess that's the the part is we we in my in my area we're we're trying we're often trying to answer one or two questions but but may have parts of answers to five or six but really not because we didn't we weren't set up in the first place to do that so we so so I'm trying to structure those better to be able to um, to answer some of those questions. Yeah, and it's it's a, it's always tricky. And I was on a, a PhD defense yesterday uh, with Depikia um, Bangia, who's a student of um, Deb Keenan's, about use of podcasts uh, to convey nutritional information in supermarkets. And I think I shared a copy of the manuscript with you. Um, that, did I write? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, really interesting stuff. But of course, as it comes out in the PhD defense, there's a lot of things that she should have done differently if she wanted to make certain conclusions. And of course, that's why we do research. Um, anyway, and then a little bit of real time follow up. Um, it's uh, it's blue M&Ms that are associated with increased libido and it's uh, it's green jelly beans that are associated with acne, uh, according to the XKCD comic. So no Internet in my house because someone uh, cut a line somewhere, which meant there was no trauma maple leafs game there was no trauma blue jays game there was no netflix 
There Ooh. was no uploading a podcast file. Wow. Yeah, it was a pain. But it, but then Just I was huddled around the fire and, and ate raw meat, huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, D- Danny went to Target. I put the boys to bed. Danny went to Target. Uh, I had a bath and went to bed. <laughs> read, yeah, it was, and read something on my phone. Uh, back in yeah, so so Canada's a little bit like that. Although I'm gonna get a an XCOM uh, portable hotspot for this trip. So okay. I'll have something, but I'll be. Yeah. But we're out in the we're out in, a, in an area that has really poor. Cell phone coverage too, so oh. so we'll see how it goes. Cool, cool, cool. We'll have. Where are you going again? Dublin. Well, have fun in Dublin. I will. Uh, is Kristen going with you? She is. Oh, cool. Dublin. Uh, I mean, I've been there once, and I was a college student, so clearly my experience was really awesome. Uh, I stayed in a hostel with four other people and drank a lot of Guinness. <laughs> well, we're not staying in a hostel. Um, I don't particularly like Guinness and Kristen doesn't like beer of any kind, um, well, but I like, I like whiskey. So I'm imagining I will have some Irish whiskey. That'll be cool. I, I, um, I had a lunch interview with Patrick wall when I was there as well. When the last time from, you know, Pat, you know, Pat wall, I know the name. He used to run food safety for the EU. And then now is the food safety. Like he was when, when Ireland was the chair of EFSA, he right. was the he was the guy who was running the Food Safety Authority of Ireland, and then now he's a um, he's a professor at I think UCD. Oh, okay, that's where I'm going. I'm I'm a, oh, on a thesis of a, a UCD student, a cool. thesis committee of a UCD student. So sweet. Well, he's yeah. he's a he's a cool dude. Um, so I had I met him at some Dublin hotel for coffee. Um, while I was traveling, I was there for a wedding, but then also did some food safety stuff. No, oh, nice. This was back, back in the day. It was a lot of fun. Nice. Yeah. Um, uh, cool. We'll have a good time. All right. Uh, and I'll, uh, talk to you in a couple of weeks. That sounds good. Talk to you then. Right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.